Welcome, this is Stephen Lee, and this is Life and the Living of It. This is part two of the Heart Odyssey, when I wake up with a whole new set of complications. No one tells you how you might feel when you wake up from major heart surgery. I think there may be a reason behind that. Unless you have been through it, there's no way to describe it adequately. Nothing prepares you. For one thing, my senses were scrambled. My sense of touch seemed to be riding about two inches above my skin. It was very disconcerting. My vision at long distances was jumpy, like rocking an old-time film projector back and forth while trying to watch the movie. I could close my eyes and it felt like I was surrounded by a close-fitting box of darkness. I felt my chest all the time and it felt like it was both torn up and soothed over at the same time. Now I know that I was mostly chemical then, morphine and the residual effects of anesthesia and everything else. When you can't trust your senses, it's a very, very unsettling thing. The worst thing for me wasn't the senses, it was the ventilator. I have a small airway anyhow, and with an enlarged thyroid, the ventilator was extremely uncomfortable. I worked very hard to get it removed as soon as possible. That's really the first step in the long road to freedom, getting rid of that damn ventilator. Other milestones were eventually reached. Like the first time they pulled me up from the bed and plopped me on a commode, it was a victory. Because no one, and I mean no one, wants the indignity of going in a bed uncontrolled. However, two days after waking from the medically induced coma, while I had accomplished those two milestones, there were problems quickly developing. My kidneys decided not to wake up from the coma. They weren't functioning. I remember the nephrologist coming in and saying that I would have to have another line put in and start dialysis. I called my mom, who had taken a short trip home to get some stuff, and she came back. What I would not come to know until later, that on the trip to the hospital, she broke down emotionally, but she pulled herself together before coming back into the ICU. Now, while I knew about the possibility of kidney failure, actually going through kidney failure was overwhelming. But the nephrologist says it sometimes takes a few days to a few weeks for the kidneys to wake back up and to be patient. I would come to hear that phrase several times more, be patient. But I couldn't help but have visions of needing dialysis long term. That maybe I was one of those patients that the kidneys don't wake up, which I had also read about. Then my liver started getting inflamed. The test came back and it showed a liver that was waterlogged, backed up, and malfunctioning. Now when such things happen with the kidneys and liver, usually the normal course of treatment with anti-rejection drugs and other meds is radically changed. But not when you're just out of surgery. Not when there are so many other balances that cannot be touched. So many other changes that cannot be made because the system equilibrium is still so shaky. So any intervention had to be very minimal and very slow. The very drugs that caused the liver and kidney problems, they could not cut down on them. Limiting the anti-rejection drugs in any way right after surgery would be very dangerous because I could reject quite quickly. So they made incremental changes in everything else but the anti-rejection drugs. And this balancing act continued for a few days, and I felt terrible. The thoughts going through my mind were that a new heart would make me automatically feel better, right? 
Wrong. That's not the case. When people say they feel like death slightly warmed over, I was death that was still on the cold side. I was so severely disappointed and disillusioned at this point. And you talk about laments? God had it coming. God and I had a come-to-Jesus meeting. Things like, how dare you build up my hopes for a brighter, more healthy body and look at where I am. Those kinds of conversations. But things change. The kidneys started slowly working again. Every day, the amount of dialysis needed went down a little bit. And one day, they disconnected the dialysis machine and took out that line. That was another victory. Because that dialysis line in my neck got in the way of every movement my head made. And I was sure glad to say goodbye to it. And the first thing I did was move my neck backward, forward, left, and right. Like an ostrich doing a mating dance. It finally felt like a leech stopped sucking on the side of my neck. Now when the kidneys started improving, the liver started improving too. Which was great. The numbers came back and they were more positive and more positive. So now the only two scourges left in my life were the incredible migraines I had and the fact that my vision was still jumping. The migraines were such that I couldn't open my left eye until about a half an hour after an oxycodone pill. That entire side of my face was scrunched up and a pain that was so intense it interfered with me even focusing my eyes. And while I distrust narcotics and I try not to be on them ever, they were the only way that this incredible migraine would loosen up. And it was the only way that I could open my left eye. Now the vision thing. I had three different neurologists look me over, examine me, and no one could explain the vision thing. The vision where the entire frame of reference seems to go up and down, much like the broken projector example I used before. They didn't know what was going on, which you do not want to hear from three experts in their field. They did a CAT scan. They did a Doppler. I took three different types of nausea medication. They had an eye doctor come in. They put me through vision tests, and they had no idea what was happening. And I thought, can I survive if this is what my eyesight does the rest of my life? Or will I be on nausea medication forever? I was quite a bit at my low at this point. Finally, I got well enough to be moved from the ICU up to cardiac monitoring. When this happens, all the major lines are pulled and a simple IV is left in place. So two more necklines came out. It's freedom. But you know what? I only learned later that taking the lines out of my neck reduced the irritation on my vagus nerve. And without that irritation in place, guess what? My jumping vision stopped jumping. I considered it a miracle and somewhat disappointed that none of my quote-unquote professionals brought that up as a possibility. Even with all these milestones and freedoms, you guessed it, there were more complications to come. When I was going through bone cancer, I had bad veins. They blew several IVs in those days, and I hoped this would be different. When they take out all of the main lines, they have to insert an IV. Normally, this is no big thing, but I had been missed several times and I did not want them to miss again. So I asked immediately for the best of the best of the best. I wanted a nurse or a PA or someone who had done 10,000 IVs. Sadly, she was not available. So they brought in an IV vein contrast machine, 
which basically uses infrared light in order to make visible the veins. They said using this machine made IVs almost foolproof. But lo and behold, they blew the vein the first time, and it hurt. I said, get me someone from phlebotomy to do this. They came up, and guess what? They blew the vein. Finally, they had a head nurse from pediatrics come up who had never in her 30-year career failed to get an IV started. And it blew. They had another phlebotomist come up and attempt it, and it failed. I was in such pain and such frustration at this point, I wanted to scream at someone. Finally, the head nurse said, it looks like we're going to have to put in a pick line. Now, a pick line goes through the arm and goes through the armpit and goes into the heart. And even though it was more major than a normal IV, it required a small incision, local anesthetic, and a little bit of heparin pushed in to keep the line open. It had to be better than me feeling like a needle cushion. So they finally put in a pick line, but in the process of putting in the pick line, they hyperextended my arm, doing damage to the muscles there. In fact, it was my quote-unquote sore arm for another year and a half. Now, this is all trauma. It triggered the trauma when I had cancer and they blew out my veins. It triggered trauma in hyperextending the arm, which a bully had done when I was much younger. That's the thing about major surgery and major recovery. It never fails to bring up the shades of old and make visible those things that had not yet properly been addressed. Revisiting old ground is traumatic. Yet more trauma was on its way. Now why do things happen the very day that your mother, who has been with you faithfully, decides it's time for her to go home, get some stuff done, and have some herself time? But it did. My mom decided to leave for most of the afternoon one day. And at this point, things were looking quite stable. Then just at nursing change around 3 p.m., my heart started beating very very hard and very, very fast. Let me try to put this in perspective. One minute it was beat, 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 beat. And the next it was beat, 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 beat. Yes, that much of a change in a second. It went from 100 to 168. I don't know about you, but 168 beats per minute feels wrong. My whole body was shaking and thundering. I had the fear that my internal stitches would rip out just from the pressures of a heart beating that hard and that fast. And I smashed my button, the call button. I smashed it and I smashed it and I smashed it. And nobody answered and nobody answered. And I called out in a loud voice to anybody who could hear me, I need help. I need help. But it was the shift change and nobody heard me. Finally, I whipped out my cell phone and I called my cardiologist next door and I said, hey, this is going on. Something's wrong. Call the nurse, call the doctor, get somebody in here. And about five minutes later, someone finally showed up. From the time I first mashed that button to the time someone showed up was a half an hour. Half an hour that I was in panic, praying the stitches held under such pressure and that I didn't bleed out internally. Well, they came in, they took an EKG, and I was told I was in a flutter. A flutter is atrial fibrillation where the top chambers of the heart flutter, but it is also tachycardia where the left and right ventricle beat way faster than they should. My doc explained very calmly that some atypical rhythms happen in about 30% of transplant patients. And with electrocardioversion, which is basically shocking the heart back into rhythm, 
it would probably stop. It would probably stop. They cardioverted me the next day, and for about two hours, I had a normal rhythm. And then the violence started again, and I was ready to cry. I was totally at the end of my rope emotionally. With a heart rate above 160, it's almost impossible to sleep. It's almost impossible to concentrate on anything. It's almost impossible to be at any sense of peace. It just felt impossible. They put me on another drug, and it did change the rate. But it changed it like five times a minute. So one second I was at 73, and another second I was at 138, and then 90, and then 156, and then 111, and then 166. This was so much worse than being pegged at one rate. Every gear change felt so wrong. And any sense of normality after a heart transplant kind of was out the window. And they finally put me on amniodarone, which did work. It took three days, but I finally had a normal rhythm. Ironically, I was talking to the psychologist about coping mechanisms for this violence in my body and the turmoil in my mind when this happened. I had the sudden sinking sensation, like I was in a canoe that was filling with water. I called the nurse, and they showed me a perfect sinus rhythm on the EKG. No AFib, no a flutter, no tachycardia. It's interesting that my body in those four days got so used to the violence of an abnormal heartbeat that a normal sinus rhythm took about an hour for my body to get used to. And then after four days of stability, a great sinus rhythm, much improved liver and much improved kidneys, I got to go home. And then the real trouble started. And the rest of the story will be continued on The Heart Odyssey Part 3 in the next podcast. And this is life and the living of it.